In the wake of recent events, we have seen the sport of cycling and its industry respond with efforts to become more inclusive. But how do we go about making meaningful change and avoid the traps of white saviorism, which is prevalent in the world of altruism? We sat down with Michael Delagrange, a lawyer for the International Criminal Court, to discuss Team Armani, an East African program he has helped set up that is tackling the development program in a unique, empowering and change-making way. This week on Thereabouts Outspoken. Howdy, hi, hello, g'day sports fans. Top of the week to you. My name is Angus Morton. This is the Outspoken Podcast and I am very pleased to announce that Isaac is back on the program. We found him disheveled, dehydrated and a little disorientated on the side of the highway in the Utah desert. Fortunately, no permanent damage was done and he's here with us now. Isaac, how are you holding up, buddy? Um, I'm holding up. Yeah, I just got back uh, after weeks on the road and um, we'll have some exciting details about that trip for you guys soon. Um, but some bad news is I wasn't the only one dehydrated, and while I was gone, all of my plants died, uh, <laughs> except for a few, which is really unfortunate and sad, um, but I think they should recover. But some good news for our listeners out there on the airwaves, our short film sometime thereafter dropped on Friday. Uh, it's something that we've worked away at while in quarantine, uh, and we are excited to have it out in the wild. If you haven't already seen it, head over to Rome for the link and all of the details. And that's not all we dropped, Isaac. We just launched our very first bike. It's a collaboration with Crust, the legendary frame maker. And uh, it's the Crust by thereabouts Bombora Dark Canyon model. It is available in very limited numbers to purchase and was custom made and, and built out to suit a trip that we did out in southern Utah, the one Isaac was referring to earlier. Check out our website for more details or head over to the Radivist for a peek at what is a beast of a bike. Michael Delagrange has seen it all. A lawyer for the International Criminal Court, he chases fallen dictators and genocidiers to the edges of the earth and then prosecutes them as war criminals for a living. So when it comes to his passion, cycling, he doesn't mince words on topics like inclusivity, fair go, athlete development, and the role of sport in society. We sat down with Michael to hear about the philosophy behind the Team Armani program he has started, their unique funding model, how it differs from the more traditional programs we've seen in developing nations, as well as how the white dominance in cycling is actually hampering the development of sport as a whole, making it less entertaining, slower, and outdated. Michael talks about the barriers to entry, the pitfalls of white saviorism, the sport's veiled racism, and the unlikely role of Zwift during the COVID-19 pandemic as an egalitarian platform that provides opportunity to those who face disadvantage due to economic status, race, and geographical location. The conversation also touches on the increasing importance of sport and competition in particular after a post-conflict world and the power of the bike to reconcile. 
I know most of you don't make it to the closing credits, so we're going to mention it up front. Please, take a look at the show notes for links to Team Armani, their Thursday night racing program, as well as ways you can help support the program. Now, to this week's show. G'day, Michael. How are you doing? And, uh, and where are you right now? Uh, good, Gus. Uh, I'm in The Hague, the Netherlands, right now. Uh, you are the self-titled head cheerleader of the Team Armani. That's correct. That's the rumor, yeah, indeed. And what is Team Armani? Uh, in one sense, Team Armani is a uh, European-slash-Dutch-based uh, cycling team that uh, is geared 100% around creating uh, racing opportunities for East African cyclists. Now, before we get to uh, the kind of nitty-gritty and, and, and the more expanded version of Team Armani, I just want to get a bit of your background and kind of form... Uh, a bit of a context and, and a bit of a bigger picture um, to kind of explain how Team Armani came about. Now, I know you've said to me before that you don't want to be at the center uh, of this story. However, I think that there is, you know, a little of your background is important here. Michael, tell me what it is that you do and and how did you end up doing what it is that you do? I'm a lawyer. I work at the International Criminal Court uh, in The Hague. Uh, I spent uh, the better part of 10 years working um, for the International Criminal Court in East African countries, um, mostly Kenya, Uganda, and uh, DR Congo. Um, I work uh, specifically on uh, enabling victims of uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity to participate in trials against uh, the persons who allegedly committed those crimes. And my role specifically is to uh, go to these countries and to uh, identify those who uh, have suffered harm uh, from these these mass crimes and um, facilitate their engagement with the court. Um, Because we're based in the Hague, um, these trial procedures can be quite an abstraction if if you are living in a small village uh, and have little awareness of international criminal law, which I think is fair enough. So part of the role and, and the idea behind victim participation is to um, get some buy-in, some ownership of this process from the, the natural constituencies, the, the people who actually suffered harm from the crimes that we have uh, amended to investigate. So that's what we do. And then uh, I, I take their statements, uh, run them, those statements go through uh, a judicial process. And in the end, if... Um, if someone is convicted, so this is a, a court about indiv- individual criminal responsibility. So we don't try states; we we try individuals, those most responsible. Uh, and if they're if they're found guilty, then uh, then the victims may be entitled to reparations, which uh, I also uh, help uh, to facilitate. Most people are pretty nebulously aware of the International Criminal Court, um, and and your description right now, I think, would go beyond most people's understanding. But just to 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 kind of bring this to, to home, you recently tried a case. I just want to hear an example of the type of people that you are prosecuting and going after, and 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 what that kind of, and and how long these cases draw out. At the moment, um, there's one case against uh, an individual called Bosco Antaganda. He was known as the Terminator. Um, he was. Uh, uh, well, he's now been convicted, so I can say that uh, he was convicted of committing 
a rebel or warlord militia. Um, and the types of crimes that he was convicted for were uh, mass rape, mass murder, um, uh, forcible displacement from, from homes, pillaging and destruction of property, these kinds of crimes, but on a mass scale. So thousands of people in pay. Um, and then a new case they're working on that I think the American public would particularly be more uh, aware of is uh, in relation to Darfur. Uh, we just recently had an arrest mm-hmm. uh, uh, a, uh, the of being involved in the uh, the mass crimes uh, committed in the Darfur region. Um, and so now we have a task of, of potentially engaging hundreds of thousands of people uh, in, in, a, in a pretty big trial. So, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, the American public may be aware of the International Criminal Court for the, uh, the Secretary of State made a statement, but I am not really at liberty to discuss that. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> it's just, um, yeah. Fair enough. Just be aware that it's out there, yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Now, before we, again, there's one, one more thing that I want to um, to, to get your kind of thoughts on before we dive into this thing because I think it applies to what you're doing um, with Team Armani and and that was something you've said this you said this to me a while you and I have had quite a few discussions over the past what you know eight or nine months I think and um, you said to me that you started out wanting to save the world or change the world um, but have kind of changed your views on that Um, I want to know what you mean um, by that and then also I think we do have you know, our, our audience is a pretty active audience that often want to make a difference or want to do something that contributes to positive change, but don't always know how. Um, I'm interested to hear if you have any advice on where to place their efforts, where to put their energy. I was an idealist. That's uh, why I got into this line of work. I thought that uh, um, individuals, I mean, this is also kind of a, a particular school of American thought, I think. I don't know what they put in the water or the milk, but... Uh, Hmm. There's this idea that uh, each of us individuals is sort of born to to make the change that we want to see in the world. And they really inculcate that in our minds from a young age. Not to say that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. It leads to a lot of positivity. But at the same time, I think sometimes it 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 leaves us feeling like we need to do something individually, something spectacular, something right. at scale, uh, rather than being part of something bigger. Uh, and I think that's where I think we go wrong sometimes. And I suppose after mm-hmm. my 10 years of experience uh, working for a big organization with a huge mandate, um, that's almost <laughs> by definition set to fail uh, because uh, we are, are designed most oftentimes uh, a losing endeavor. And if to the, to the degree that we do succeed, it's a, borrowing a cycling term, a marginal game. So I guess with that experience, um, I'm more inclined to be part of something uh, rather than, you know, someone who's trying to to kind of, you know, start from scratch, build my own wheel, um, have the light shine on me and, and my brilliant idea. I think actually being part of a big coalition um, focused on, on on a singular task, laser focused, as opposed to being distracted with the sort of omnibus uh, challenges that we could potentially get involved in. That's what's really compelling to me at the moment. Uh, marginal gains. 
And so now with that cycling analogy and with your your background, where does the bike fit into your life? How has cycling come to be uh, a moving force for you? Um, so I'm one of the uh, generation that got on their bike in 1999 when we watched Lance uh, ride through France for the first time. Um, so to that uh, and for that, I will always be grateful to him. Um, I know that's controversial, but uh, I had to put that out there. Um, yep. Yeah, but and since then, I've been riding my bike. It's it's been the uh, it's been the pursuit. Uh, the the thing that I can do to kind of discharge, uh, uh, unplug, um, and sometimes you know, like uh, life can be heavy, you know, and uh, and especially if you in my line of work, you hear, you tend to hear quite a lot. Uh, about the human struggle and, uh, and sometimes it kind of weighs on you so so getting out on the bike uh, I, I find it's a real nice release uh, it always has been um, so yeah it's just been a, a kind of singular obsession of mine uh, outside of work uh, for 20 years and how did that lead you to start Team Armani so um, a, a couple of years ago I bought um, with a couple of my friends um, a bikes and coffee shop uh, based in my city and basically in an effort to kind of it was our, the hub of our cycling club that we built from scratch because nobody wanted to ride with me in Europe because I was American <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it might be a bit of an exaggeration but uh, it, it wasn't the same cycling culture that I was used to um, mm-hmm. and so uh, so yeah anyway we, we built a home for ourselves and, uh, and, and we built this little community and and then uh, the opportunity came to get involved in this uh, in this business, and and, and we did. Um, and uh, there was already a sort of philanthropic side to it, uh, but the but the guy who owned it before me uh, was a good friend, and and he had gotten involved in uh, in cycling in Uganda. Um, and I traveled there for work as well and uh, I spent some time seeing what they were doing but at a distance because um, part of my work is really uh, I'm really quite involved in the sort of development scene the international development scene and I've seen the good bad and the ugly and I was really reluctant to start anything ugly Um, so uh, and I saw all the the kind of typical mistakes that were being made you know uh, essentially you know these great and beautiful ideas that you know that sound nice on a European dinner table but have no practical uh, foot in attraction in, in, a, in certain development contexts. Uh, so I just saw this graveyard of good ideas, you know, uh, you know, Rabobank jerseys and broken commuter bikes and various other things that people had ideas about in the past. Um, and it was that moment where we kind of just said, you know, if I, if I were, I, would, I just was really chopping on the bit to kind of do something different than my day-to-day job in the countries I was working in. And if I could be part of something more positive, um, I was really kind of you know, eager to get involved in, and then in just spending the, those years in those contexts and, and bringing my bike on occasion, I got involved with some of the uh, the, the cycling teams in, the, in, in those countries, watched what they were doing. And then uh, the moment came where basically we decided to, to start something up and the, and the whole idea of it really is just, uh, it's not really about... Um, starting a team with, you know, pro world tour aspirations or even pro Conti aspirations. It's really about um, uh, utilizing the, the, ac- the access and connections that we have in the Netherlands uh, to the benefit 
of these uh, of these writers from these three uh, countries that I was working most uh, most heavily in. Um, so that's that's where the kind of genesis of the project came in. And you you mentioned this right, like continental Africa is a bit of a beacon for philanthropy, um, and especially in that in the sporting space. Uh, but if you look, you know, as you said, you look a little closer, and there's some questionable motives there, a lot of white saviorism. You know, how do you sort of specifically have you figured out where your program fits and how it's different? Uh, to answer your question, I'm I'm very sensitive to uh, the white savior complex. Um, it's uh, it's super prevalent in uh, the line of work that I'm in. It's super prevalent in international development. Um oh. And it's super it's super prevalent in the uh, in the cycling scene in in Africa as well. Uh, that just has to be said. And um, mm -hmm. I think an operating core principle for me, uh, and and it has been from the very beginning for everyone that uh, works in in this uh, little project that we have going, is that we start one from a position of, of, of respect for the kind of work that's gone into developing um, cycling in East Africa. Um, and not looking past that with our with our broad ideas, and two, uh, the first thing we did and the first thing we continue to do uh, is to basically ask where we can be uh, helpful, rather than to say where we will be helpful or what we can do. And uh, and it's it sounds like a subtle difference or maybe even a little cliche, but um, if you, if you think about it in practical terms, so rather than what what tends to happen, right, is someone goes and says, well, look, I have. Uh, I have all these uh, bottom brackets from the 1980s. You want them? You know, I have all these. Uh, I have all these. Uh, you know, time sunglasses uh, with with the missing <laughs> missing one lens. Do you want them? And, and and if you tell that to somebody who has nothing, right, or who is lacking in, in the material in general, or who wants to develop a relationship with you in case it leads to something they actually need, then of course they're going to say yes. That's a power dynamic, mm. you know, and that's a power dynamic. Right. That I, is uh, that people don't understand uh, because they they know in their hearts that they were motivated for the right reasons and therefore they cannot be wrong. Um, and I understand that. I'm not throwing stones. I understand that impulse. But uh, at the same time, it doesn't move the dial. Um, and, and what we're interested in is moving the fucking dial. So the first thing I said was uh, to these three uh, organizations uh, in the three countries, uh, that I thought were doing the best job. How can we help you? Um, and they said to us almost uh, uniformly, uh, the thing we need are racing, is racing opportunities, full stop, in Europe. That's what they need. Um, you know, they, right. they have their own continental race scene. They have their own, you know, they have the bikes that they have, uh, but they're suitable bikes. They can ride for, at least for their team, uh, the team members. Um, but what they need more than anything is, you know, you can tell somebody uh, from the village, yeah, you don't need to go and do X, Y, or Z. You should actually ride your bike instead. You're, you have a lot of talent. They need to see mm. that that's worth something, that there's a pathway to prosperity, to success, to something, right? And, then, and if you see the best guys in your team um, still racing, you know, locally year after year with no access to the bigger game, you're not going to invest your time in this, you know? Uh, you're going to mm -hmm. do something else, and and that, and that's a huge problem. So access uh, is 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 the key issue at the moment. 
how are you providing access to the team? Can you kind of explain the structure and the setup and, and what you guys actually do uh, or actually are trying to do on the ground? Yeah, again, it was part of the it was part of our listening campaign. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to be honest, we, we, did, we wanted to find, again, not to do something that other people were doing effectively uh, because that's not necessary. Um, we wanted to fill a gap and, and, and to do so, we just had to listen. And, and one of the things that um, what people were saying was that, um, you know, there is, a, there is an attrition rate um, for those who do come uh, and do make it out of, uh, out of East Africa to come and ride in the World Tour, the Pro Conti uh, ranks. Uh, and some people were saying, well, we just don't know why that is. Um, but then if you talk, mm-hmm. to, you talk to an Australian or you talk to an American or you talk to anyone who's not European about their first experience in the world tour or their first experience in a pro Conti tour in Europe, and I'll tell you, almost to a man, it was fucking confronting. It was super confronting, yeah. you know? Um, there was, uh, whether it be the language barrier, whether it be you know, thrown already into a super intense environment, um, where you're, you know, you're completely exhausted all day, every day. You don't know, you don't speak the language. So you don't even know how to get your own groceries. You don't know what the rental situation is. You don't know anything. Um, uh, and then there's like the cultural divides. There's like the team dynamics and things that you don't quite understand. Maybe because you don't follow the language, and to the extent that they involve you in the conversation, you always feel like it's a bit forced. Like all of these things lead to isolation. Uh, and especially when you're dealing with your own demons because you're turning yourself inside out every day. Uh, I mean, I think anybody who's not European can understand why uh, that can be um, a seriously uh, confronting barrier uh, to, to entry for, for, for a lot of people. Uh, but particularly now, if you add, if you add um, an additional cultural barrier, uh, because, I mean, to the... I think that mm-hmm. at least there is some overlap and some similarities and some areas where people can at least relate to each other if they're coming from Australia, the United States to Europe. But uh, sometimes uh, in certain uh, African contexts that the, the cultural divide is quite significant. Um, and I think you also find that a lot of people just aren't really willing to put the effort in to kind of bridge it. You know, they're also tired uh, and it's not their job. Uh, their job is to win. Right. Race. So, uh, so yeah, uh, I mean, I've even heard stories, uh, about, you know, the teams that were actually focused on, you know, African development based in Africa where they had inter-team divides, right. Where the, hmm. the African riders were doing their own thing and the European, uh, riders were doing their own thing. Um, and you know, they, they chatted and everyone was pleasant to each other, but it wasn't, you know, that maybe the level of camaraderie you see on other teams like Mistleton Scott, for example, or, or, or others. Now, um, so th- your question, what are we doing uh, to address that? Um, and, and so when we heard that was the issue, yeah. um, uh, what mm-hmm. we tried to do was create now this kind of low-pressure environment in The Hague, in the Netherlands, so this kind of cycling mecca, um, where we have this team of sort of competitive amateurs uh, slash, you know, uh, elite level riders uh, who are all on this team for the sole purpose of supporting East African riders when they come. So they, they will put in their races uh, their own personal ambitions to the side. And when these guys come for a month or two uh, for racing blocks, uh, 
they will be uh, focused on creating a sort of inclusive and permissive environment for people to kind of, you know, at a younger age. So we're focusing now on, uh, you know, guys who are still within that development rank uh, age bracket, 17 to 20, uh, giving them their first taste of European life, but having it be a positive experience with less pressure, um, with with sort of warm, welcoming arms, uh, and, and but then also allowing them to kind of taste uh, uh, some racing, uh, because you know a lot of uh, one of the other critiques is that you know despite the the power numbers that a lot of these guys can put out, uh, they don't they lack the racing dynamic, uh, especially when it comes to like crit races and things that are super technical. And we have a lot of those races at our disposal here. Um, so again, though, at a little bit less uh, turbocharged uh, environment. Uh, and, and then so just giving those guys uh, an opportunity to kind of uh, experience Europe, um, make those cultural and, and, and interpersonal connections, also see where they are at, at a sporting level. And that's really important, right? So if they're blowing people's wheels off, then they know where they are and they're going to get some exposure. If they're getting their wheels blow off, they know they know mm -hmm. they know what they got to do when they go home. So that that was the kind of um, that was the kind of model that we had um, in mind. So again, we don't select the riders; we let the teams select them themselves. So who they think is best placed to to benefit from this opportunity, um, and then we make partnerships. So instead of raising all this cash, we try and make partnerships with you know, for example, the city of the Hague to to house the athletes when they come. Uh, mm -hmm. to reach out to airline in the airline industry to see if they will you know throw a couple of flights our way you know in exchange for some positive publicity these kinds of things uh, rather than being sort of beholden to uh, to corporate sponsors or to individual fundraising and how has that been how has that process of, of of raising you know the the capital needed to to enact this this program well so far it's been pretty good and actually it feels better to me because I'm just I'm not really good personally on asking for money, but I am better at shaming. Right. I'm better at shaming people and just telling them to do the right thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. and, I, and I think, especially if you can get a human being across the table from you and you can look him in the face and say, look, this is a problem and this is how you can help. Uh, and it's not about writing a check because that's too easy, but you are well-placed based on what you do to, to assist. I found it that, mm -hmm. it, uh, I found it to a lot of support in the early days so but again um this was of course all pre-pandemic exactly and that kind of brings me um what were your plans for 2020 and then how did the pandemic you know kind of spin those uh out of control and then i guess you know how have you made lemonade from those lemons yeah well um if you would have asked me a few months ago about how I made lemonade out of the lemons, I would have said, there's no lemonade coming. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the original plan was, um, it was to uh, take two riders from each of the clubs, um, bring them here for two uh, racing blocks, about a month, month and a half long each. Um, and they, 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 they began with like these kind of local crit races that we had, um, that we have in the city. Um, that were given that kind of technical uh, experience, but that that's happening twice a week, and then you know we uh, increasingly built up to the these two kind of main events, two big races uh, at the end of each block. 
um, and so we had a special team kind of designed to 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 race with these guys uh, and and to yeah and to just give it a crack. Um, but that was of course turned on its head with all the uh, COVID-related travel restrictions. All the races were cancelled, um, and right. yeah, we were just kind of like, "Well, there, even if we could travel here, there would be nothing to race uh, and nothing to do." Um, so yeah, there was some head scratching for a while and some uh, some soul searching. But uh, an idea did uh, finally come about, uh, and uh, it won't surprise anyone that it has to do with uh, with e-racing. But uh, and and mm-hmm. I have to confess that I was not in this scene at all. Like I never really uh, thought much about e-racing. I was never a video gamer myself, uh, and I just couldn't really figure out how like people could justify being inside when they could be outside. Uh, but you know, when, when you're in the in the in, in the throes of a pandemic, you know everybody is inside, uh, and so it was a really nice uh, alternative. And um, and so the more we investigated, the more we found that actually this e-racing scene ticks a hell of a lot of boxes for us. Uh, and so if you think about it, um, e-racing, uh, e-racing, it, well, let's, let's think about the barriers to entry, the barriers to entry for, uh, for a modern, uh, African cyclist starts with, let's say, um, corruption, uh, or incompetence at the mm-hmm. nat- national federation level. I don't want to overemphasize corruption because I think sometimes it, too much is made of it, uh, and it sometimes serves as a bit of a dog whistle for white saviors. But uh, at the same time, mm-hmm. it's a real issue, uh, and 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 the and the key thing is that um, at the federation level. Uh, those guys tend to be the ones who have to sign off on any travel uh, for the athlete. So if you want to invite someone to come from the Kenyan Cycling Federation to come and race in Holland, then the the, the chair of the, of the Cycling Federation has to sign that uh, travel document. And if he doesn't want to, the athlete's not traveling. That's a lot of power, you know. Um, and so uh, with e-racing, you obviously bypass that. Uh, because with one yep. with one e trainer in a clubhouse, uh, suddenly we have an entire team uh, able to compete at the international level, um, and that's already uh, in terms of return of investment, it's a it's a pretty huge gain. Um, and now, if we look at other barriers to entry, so for example, um, there's this sort of implicit, conscious or subconscious bias with within the European peloton and the cycling industry in general. Um, and I'm willing to say that the vast majority of it is uh, subconscious. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think it's, it's really based on this idea that, you know, we've seen, we've seen that African cyclist come before and we know it doesn't pan out. Uh, it wasn't our experience personally, but we know a guy who had that experience and therefore the European is the safer bet. Um, now, with e-racing, we see that people are being plucked from obscurity uh, who are able to just do amazing things uh, with, with the power that they're able to generate. Now, you finally get around these gatekeepers, these, I, I call them the Yops and the Paolos of the world, uh, who have seen it all. <laughs> uh, because now you, you have like an independent platform uh, and you're gaining notoriety because you're blowing people's wheels off uh, an in, in international scene. 
Um, so that's uh, that's the the second uh, thing that's really nice. And then the last thing really is that from a talent scouting perspective, um, you know, the, a lot of the tools that uh, these local coaches have at their disposal are, are fairly rudimentary. Um, and sometimes they're even anecdotal, right? Like they'll say, well, you know, the fastest guy who goes up this hill, you know, this local hill. But when you're trying to sell somebody to, you know, maybe an inter, uh, to a European continental team and say, well, this guy's really worth investing in. And you don't, you can't say what their FTP is, or you can't say, you know, um, anything about that. That's kind of objective scientific measure. Right. Um, then you're, then you're not in, uh, you're not in, at least on an equal playing field to, to others who are trying to, you know, shop their best cyclists. And so another thing that we can manage with this, with, with this e-racing platform is to, um, is to really uh, standardize the kind of testing and, and the tools that these guys have available uh, so that they can, you know, find the next uh, Justin Williams or Chris Froome. First and foremost, like, it sounds as though this e-racing platform is now going to form an integral part of Team Armani. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I, like I said, three months ago, I would have just never believed it if you said that. Um, but uh, but the more we uh, get into this uh, and the more we talk with our partners, the more excited everyone's getting. And we've now put on, we have this uh, Zwift event now every Thursday night um, that uh, we're going to use as a platform to try and, uh, well, we're simultaneously trying to equip all of these clubhouses around the continent, but particularly in East Africa, with e-racing capability. We're creating a singular platform mm -hmm. for all of these guys to come together, guys and girls, and hopefully meet each other, uh, network with each other, see each other, you know, share experiences, understand like the common struggles, the common goals, the common aims. Uh, and then hopefully from there, we can put together a kind of team with, uh, again, with this Amani uh, mentality, this sort of umbrella team, um, where we take the best riders and we start competing in international e-races, um, but with a kind of like, you know, a whole host of, of really talented African riders. And again, with the sole purpose of trying to raise their profile, nothing else, um, so that they can get noticed, so that they can get opportunities. So two things. First one is, um, like this e-racing, the standardization of testing, the ability to let the legs do the talking for these athletes, from their home are you seeing success are you getting um interest from people that you know there normally would have been that barrier uh to to even just getting them on the start line to give them the opportunity to demonstrate their skill yeah the first to answer your first point um yeah we've seen a, a hell of a lot of enthusiasm uh from the cyclists themselves and that's really cool to see. Like I can, I can share with you. Uh, maybe I have already some some of the videos of because we put this on now for the last three weeks, and mm -hmm. we're really because we haven't gotten the e trainers yet into the clubhouses. We're still working on uh, partnership agreements with uh, with a uh, with a provider. But um, but we've done some makeshift power trainers that are uh, yeah. really, really interesting to see. But uh, but they they do the job. And uh, yeah, it's just super fun to kind of link uh, link everyone up and, and and get them out there. And the, yeah, and the numbers that they that they're producing are interesting, particularly uh, out of E10 in Kenya, where they're at 2,400 meters and still uh, producing pretty serious uh, power numbers. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. And it's also kind of social too, because you know we have an opportunity now with the guys in Europe to you know talk a little smack to to the guys in Kenya, and uh, and that's, that's really. <laughs> 
I find conducive to uh, team building. Um, so, yeah. Now, on the cycling industry side, I think, um, well, how do I say this? I think uh, it was an opportune moment, uh, let's say, a few weeks ago uh, mm-hmm. to kind of be pitching this kind of idea. Um, right. And I think uh, the cycling industry was, you know, reaching for something, a fig leaf to cover uh, their exposure. Um, and so we were well placed. Uh, but at the same time, um, I'm skeptical about uh, about long term commitments because this is a long term plan, you know, um, and this is something that uh, that we really need to, you know, w- we need commitment more than just on a kind of superficial corporate level. Um, and and so and, and my my personal view is that actually the uh, the enthusiasm is probably going to be short lived. And it will mm-hmm. be on it will be on us to kind of force the issue. So it will be on uh, the riders to perform it at such a level uh, that they're, that they're impossible to ignore. And it, you know this goes to that old stereotype, like you know, for example, Barack Obama has to be kind of the best human being in the history of the planet to, to right. be president, right? Whereas other white people can just be average, you know. <laughs> well, or, be, or or far below average if 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 the current commander in chief is anything to go by, right? I want to actually get. I want to get to that um, the systemic bias and then the current climate and whether or not you uh, you believe there's going to be lasting change. But just quickly to go back to this e-racing thing, it sounds as though Team Armani is already eclipsing through this virtual platform. Just you know, just simply a small team that's kind of localized, right? Because you're able to, as you said, you're able to put these trainers. You're able to set up these um, programs in in a number of different places. Is that the case? Is the program already expanding to be larger than just you know uh, a handful of bike riders that were originally meant to go to Europe and and, and race some crits? Again, that's the, that, that's sort of the beautiful thing about this idea, and uh, because we we suddenly see the opportunity expanding from four people or six people to potentially forty or fifty people. Uh, and for less money, um, and so that just means that the the the, the potential exposure uh, and the potential impact uh, can be exponentially larger. Now, I don't I don't want to overstate uh, our particular role because, again, like I said in the very beginning, I'm very interested in networks at the moment, and I'm mm-hmm. not necessarily interested in you know this being seen as uh, you know Team Amani going from something small to something huge. It's really a coalition, and that's how I see it. You know, we have a, a great partner in Rwanda uh, called Team Africa Rising. We have a great partner in Kenya called Kenya Riders. We have a great partner in Uganda called Masaka Cycling Club. Uh, these guys are doing the hard work, you know. We are basically trying to just put everything together that they've been doing for years, decades, you know. Uh, and so, um, and, and the moment seems to be, you know, a lot of things are kind of coming together. And, and, and so we're cautiously optimistic that, that maybe this is the moment to, to start the conversation, to start it, mm-hmm. to start it. And I really want to emphasize that because, I mean, you don't go from zero inclusivity or 1% inclusivity, not even 1%, to, to you know, something that looks like, you know, uh, a sport that's actually global and, and import and dynamic. You know, it's just, it, it, that's going to take time. You know, if you think about like I was thinking about it earlier today about about running, long distance running, and you know there, there's yep. a lot made of like uh, Roger Bannister's uh, four minute mile record. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you think, and you think about that now, like uh, cycling is the equivalent of long distance running in, in the forties. <laughs> you know, like yeah. What what the hell would we think about long distance running now? I mean, when you think about long distance running, you think of you know Ilya Kipchoge. You think of these guys coming right, in, uh, who are you know d- you know pressing the barriers of you know human sporting achievement. And imagine if they still couldn't run. You know what the hell would running be? And imagine and imagine I know and it sounds like a stretch and I know it does. You know, and, and people are going to tell me, oh, but there's so many differences with cycling. You know, and uh, there's all this rich culture and there's all these other things that go into. There this isn't. Sport. I don't think so either. Exactly. That's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So maybe, you know, in 20 years time, we'll, we'll, we'll be having the same conversation, you know, that, the, you know, or at least the, the pat on the back that the Colombians are having now and that are enjoying, you know, and not to say that the Colombians have won the battle. They still have a long way to right. go, but they're, they're starting to penetrate and they're starting and they're starting to, you know, they're starting to turn that dynamic where it was like, oh, but the Colombians get homesick or they always got to visit their mamas and all this crap they used to say about them in Europe to, well, they could be the next, you know, uh, egg on Bruneau. So it's probably worth the investment. Right. And, but there's something that, there's something really interesting about what you just said there, which I think kind of flips a lot of people's perspective on inclusivity and also to a sport developing in the way that it has, right? The sport is hamstringing itself by not casting the net broader. The idea, and this is what really shits me about the sport of cycling, is this tie to a tradition that's a, it's 100 years old. It's not that old, right? The wheel, the bike has been around for a really long time. And the idea that the UCI, that the World Tour, that they get to decide what the future of cycling looks like really makes me mad because if we're not including entire continents, if we're not actually genuinely opening the sport up, then we're hamstringing it. Who knows what it's going to become? Who knows what the future of the Tour de France looks like? Who knows what the future of World Tour racing looks like? And 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 you, kind of what you've just said there is really is really switched that as opposed to being like, Let's let other people participate in, you know, in inverted commas, our sport to being like, wait a second, what are they bringing to this? What can we, how can we enhance this sport, make it better, change, evolve by encouraging inclusivity? Uh, no, I think, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I wonder, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist uh, and I don't think that um, there's this cabal of power within cycling that's basically making a conscious decision to, um, not include um, minorities or, or, or continents uh, of people, uh, I, but I th- right. but I do think that there is a um, there's sort of a passive uh, a passive resistance to uh, to change. One, uh, I don't think that's controversial mm-hmm. about cycling. I think everyone can recognize that. Uh, and two, there's a sense that uh, you know um, this kind of like this blue collar working class ethos that you, that you also sometimes see in the U S where they're just like, look, we made it. And, you know, I come from, you know, poor middle of nowhere, Belgium and, you know, and nobody gave me anything and I made it in cycling. Uh, and so why the hell can't, uh, you know, so-and-so from Rwanda make it in cycling. Um, but with that, but with that, and I understand, to be honest with you, I mean, uh, I I understand that position. If, If you have no experience, um anywhere other than you know small uh town in belgium uh then i can understand that position but but cycling right. is 
cycling is really, you know, if you really think about it, it's a very expensive sport uh, to get involved in. Um, even by Western standards, it's an expensive sport to get Incredibly involved in. Incredibly so, right. And, uh, and if you think about it, like what happens to someone, you know, who's racing on one of these teams if, if something happens with their bottom bracket or if they get in a crash and they crack their frame? I mean, that could be it. That could be the entire career. <laughs> they may not get another bike. Right. You know? Imagine if you, if you mm. had to think about that where you were riding. And people are like, well, you know, they, they, they're not very good at like uh, cornering. <laughs> Fucking guys are terrified to crash. Right. There's like a little more on the line. A lot of things that people don't consider, right? And I, don't, and I, and I, and I frankly am not throwing stones about that. I, I understand why they don't consider it. It's just outside of their frame of reference. But this is, this is the hard work. This is the hard work for all of us. So when I hear people saying that they're committed to greater inclusivity, well, okay, let's start that conversation. Let's start the hard work. Let's start really identifying the barriers to entry and then making them more permissive, you know? Uh, and, and let's not think that you're going to do it with an Instagram post. It's going to take time, Bye. you know? Uh, and, and, and that's what I guess I'm, I'm worried about. I'm, I'm a little bit worried that uh, there isn't that commitment because, frankly, people will just ultimately say, look, I, I'm, this isn't an NGO. This is, a, this is a world tour outfit or we are, you know, a parts manufacturer or we are this and we are that. Let the UCI take care of it. And if it's left to the UCI, well, we all know where that's going to go. Exactly right. And I think that's been the problem, right? There's like a, a kind of nepotism that exists in within within the professional world of cycling, which traditionally speaking has been identified around the world as the pinnacle of the sport, right? You know, riders become directors, directors become managers, you know, managers go on to the, the UCI or to work at RCS or ASO or these bigger organizations. And I think to your point, there is that element of head in the sand. Now we've had a kind of global reckoning what is the extended um, steps that we need to take as an industry in order to actually make lasting change? And then the second part of that question is, do you actually believe that that is going to happen? Um, just just to, to start, I, I'm not skeptical about what's happening. To be clear, I'm not skeptical about what's happening right, in, right. in the United States. Um, I think uh, we are living through a, a very uh, important time and, uh, and, mm -hmm. and a time that I haven't seen in my lifetime. <clears throat> Certainly different than the, the momentum that we had in 2014 with the Black Lives Matter movement uh, when it first began. So I'm not, I'm not skeptical about that. I, I guess I'm, my, my skepticism lies more in terms of uh, cycling's response to this global movement. In terms of, uh, in terms of what cycling can do, uh, look, I... I I, I like to start from a position of humility, and I told you already what my approach is, and that is to ask questions, right? So you ask questions to your target community. What is it that's preventing you from accessing this sport? And let them tell you. Don't, don't listen to me. Don't ask other people who aren't directly impacted. Ask them directly. Uh, and, and that takes time. It takes humility. Uh, and, but you might be surprised what you find because some of the things that are uh, hindrance to, to entry, something that's, that's blocking uh, large swathes of, of athletes from entering into the sport, may be things that you are well positioned to address. And, and, you, know, and you don't know until you ask. So that, that, that's, that's sort of point one. Um, point two, in terms of what, uh, what else uh, the industry can do, I think, uh, I think it's important to basically... Uh, to stay committed uh, to to addressing uh, to addressing this issue and to and to not 
to understanding that in fact um, this is going to be a long game. Uh, so if, if you're looking for for quick fixes, uh, um, it's 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 just not going to happen. What's a takeaway for, for the public? You know, people who buy bikes, people who participate in this sport. Well, I guess as a, as a fan, you know, you have to say, look, I fundamentally want to see greater competition, and I am aware. Right. I'm aware now that potentially some of the best athletes in the world are not able to compete for various reasons. Um, and so you just have to kind of demand that uh, that the sport allows for, and even if it is a sort of, for lack of a better term, a kind of affirmative action policy in the beginning, right, where you are granting yep. a, a license to uh, a world tour license to a development team in Africa, knowing that they're not maybe at that sporting level, but investing in the future. Uh, if you are a fan and you start saying, well, I'm absolutely supporting that team because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul and I want to see greater inclusivity, then, then maybe you start to put the pressure on them. My fear is that fundamentally, mm -hmm. uh, and I guess this is where my skepticism lies, is that the cycling funding model for, for, for teams in general uh, is so fucked, you know? Uh, it, it's, it's based on this kind of corporate model where it, it suits short-term corporate needs, and then as soon as those needs are met, uh, or there's a financial downturn or whatever it may be, um, that team is completely washed up and, and just doesn't exist anymore, you know? It's like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> It leaves the fans kind of, you know, uh, wondering what, you know, why they should buy the paraphernalia for that team. It leaves the riders completely without a job, scrambling to get on whatever may come up in the future. Uh, it leaves coaches, support staff, everything, you know. Uh, and then even for the countries where those teams may have emanated from, you know, like it may have been your only world tour team and suddenly you don't have one because like, you know, this paint shop just decided to stop paying for the bill. You know, it just... It can't be that way anymore. I'm sure that made sense 100 years ago, but it doesn't anymore. And I think that there are enough uh, good ideas out there uh, to to come up with something different and more sustainable along the lines of these like soccer clubs and stuff where the they're kind of owned by the fans. Right. And I know like this is an old talk, but I don't want to get too far off topic. But but just to, to bring it back to what's relevant is that that problem is exponentially greater uh, in the developing world. So if you think that corporations are flippant about their commitments in Belgium. Uh, I can tell you for a fact they are uh, way less uh, concerned about short-term gains and leaving a complete team uh, high and dry in, in the developing world. And so what we I can imagine also, what we're also thinking about now is like how do we create independent streams of revenue uh, that are more sustainable? Uh, and you know, so we're. In the Kenya side, we, we came, we're coming up with a gravel event that we're hoping uh, will raise uh, revenue uh, for the Kenya riders. Um, in, in the Masaka Cycling Club, uh, this guy Ras Barash has done some really cool things with, uh, with basically getting his cycling club in Australia to finance the cycling club in Masaka. Uh, by just doing like small sort of interim payments, but enough if you get enough people involved in those things, then, then you're financing a whole outfit. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Kimberly Coates for Africa Rising has put on a whole series of events and she's gotten real sophisticated in terms of, of raising money uh, for, 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 Af for Team Africa Rising uh, in Rwanda. So there's a lot of people doing uh, really cool things that are kind of bucking the trend of, of sort of, you know, car towing to a beer company or a cigarette company or whoever it may be and asking them for, for you know, 
an ex- extraordinary amount of money for for a cycling team. Exactly right. And I want to now sort of change the focus of this conversation. We've kind of covered, you know, the barriers to entry and, and also too like that racing side of things. But I'm I'm sort of intrigued to hear, um, and I'm, I, I know I keep referencing previous conversations that we've had, um, but you mentioned that, you know, on, on, on Team Armani, you've got athletes who have been the victims or ancestors of the victims of violence, and then, you know, you have ancestors uh you have you have other riders on the team whose whose um ancestors were like the you know instigators and 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 the afflictors of violence can you sort of talk about like i want to sort of know a little bit more around the cycling culture in in these countries and how this team is maybe bringing out bringing about inclusivity uh like reconciliation and 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 kind of i don't know creating a bit more of a a a a connection between some of these places that have had a pretty violent past? This is a really sensitive question. Um, right. So I need to be careful. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, look, to to grow up uh, in East Africa over the last 20 years means that you would have lived through um, necessarily some form of mass violence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a... Uh, that's not controversial, um, unless yeah, unless you unless you had the privilege of growing up in Tanzania. But uh, Kenyans, uh, Ugandans, uh, Congolese, Rwandans, um, yeah, all of them would have uh, would have lived through, or their parents directly involved in in some form of mass violence. Um, and yes, indeed, uh, the team composition. Um, and particularly in uh, in Kenya and in Rwanda, uh, has uh, members of, of historically opposing uh, tribal and political factions. Um, and is that a problem on the team? Not that I know of. Uh, in fact, what it seems to me to be is that uh, um, cycling somehow... Uh, transcends those divisions because um yeah just the same way team sport in general does i don't want to make too much of it in terms of cycling but uh, but a team sport when you when you have a common purpose and a common aim those those things that you were told maybe growing up that were important divides become less important because you now have a common purpose with somebody um and so yeah, I think uh, in, in terms of the cycling culture in in these countries that is developing I think the coolest thing that's happening right now is definitely in Rwanda. Uh, Rwanda mm-hmm. has that kind of uh, Colombia vibe going, where you have buy-in from from uh, one. You have a very successful uh, race, where the mm-hmm. population can go out, uh, everyone can access, everyone can watch. I mean, it has like uh, rumored to have like this kind of Tour de France buy-in and atmosphere, um, and then you have buy-in from the government, who also sees that it's a it's a it's a good positive story uh and you know of course cycling uh showcases the country and and rwanda has a beautiful small piece of real estate um and so yeah uh i think i think there's really an amazing amount of development uh, and and potential uh, in rwanda i think uh kenya is uh about 10 years behind rwanda and potentially uganda is 10 years behind kenya Mm-hmm. Um, in terms, not to say that those things couldn't be accelerated, but uh, at least at the moment, 
Um, you 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 have riders like Chris Froome coming out of Kenya, but uh, but you don't yet have um, you know a big race, despite the mm-hmm. fact that, that Kenya has one of the, is one of the most topogra- to- topographically diverse countries and one of the most beautiful in all of Africa, I think. Uh, but there's no kind of marquee race there. Um, and there's not buy-in from the government uh, in terms of organizing such an event. And yeah, the the teams there are, you know, just kind of like entities un- unto themselves. They're sort of, they're succeeding despite the, you know, the country that they're in and the culture that they see. So um, yeah, I, I, I think it's not as conducive so far. Uh, but again, that's that's work to be done, you know, and, and, and maybe, you know, in a small way, um, uh, getting these riders, uh, increasing their profile, etc., that's going to be really important. You know, if they see that uh, the same way that it was for running, you know, uh, so our, our, the clubhouse for the Kenya riders in E10 is in exactly just next door to the clubhouse of Elliot Kipchoge. Uh, they're both in the same, the same small village. Um, and you know, you can see all of the walls and all of the kids are, you know, they're celebrating and calling themselves Iliad. You know, he's a, he's a national hero. Uh, everyone wants to run. Um, Mm -hmm. so if you had a breakout athlete along those lines, you know, you can quickly see how like some, you know, you know, everyone just becomes, you know, into cycling, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, it, it seems impossible at the moment. It seems so difficult at the moment until it happens. You know, if someone would have told me, I remember in 2009 there when, uh, uh, when team sky was saying that they were going to put a, a British tour de France rider. I remember thinking, what a joke. Who? No, right. <laughs> there's no chance in hell until it happens. Right. And now it just seems like, of course, sure. You know? Uh, and so maybe that's all it takes. Maybe it's just around the corner. Who knows? And I think you you mentioned Iliad there. He's I, I, obviously beyond remarkable athlete, um, but a remarkable human being. And and I think he is a real testament to sport for the betterment of society. Right. I'm interested to hear your take. Like, what role do you see sport fulfilling in society? Um, and then also, in particular, uh, where you're sort of putting the focus of your work being in East Africa. Look, uh, I think. In the modern age, um, we are called to be uh, sort of our best selves, deny a lot of our base impulses, uh, particularly in the public space. Uh, And I think um, there's a biological, especially for for men, I think, uh, sort of a biological repression that happens there needs an outlet. Uh, and, And I like... You know, especially being in the business of sort of, uh, you know, post-conflict international justice, or you know, I think I like the idea of sport as as a kind of outlet, uh, a socially acceptable outlet for a lot of these sort of maybe more base instincts of competition, uh, uh, dominance to a certain degree, mm-hmm. um, you know, winning, losing, uh, all of these aspects that have kind of like, I think anyone who's ever played sport. Uh, would say that a lot of the lessons that we learned growing up were, were, were quite fundamental. Uh, a lot of them happened on the sporting pitch, um, and so to to tie that to tie that back. I, so one, I think, in general, sport is, is is super important, and maybe more important now than ever before. Because if we are moving to an age, you know, despite how it looks on on the media and the twenty four hour news cycle, that you know, it seems like conflicts are raging across the world. But, to be honest, uh, it's one of the more peaceful 
epochs in human history. Uh, and if we continue down that path uh, and there is less conflict, um, there may need to be more peaceful competition. Um, and so in that vein, um, in, in, in a post-conflict society, um, in particular, uh, sport may play a very interesting role in kind of channeling that energy uh, into something that is socially acceptable and can even forge bonds and teach life lessons. That's definitely now got me thinking about another element, which is, to, to your point, right, we're pursuing a post-conflict world, uh, but that you know biological urge for an outlet um, needs to be satisfied. And yeah, I think... Uh, that's a really interesting perspective there. Okay, before we wrap up, I just want you to tell me a couple of things about, like explain what it's like to, to, to ride in some of these regions where um, these guys come from, you know, and, uh, and, and, if, and do you have any kind of really standout stories of your time down there? Um, well, um, it's, to be honest with you, I think, uh, like I said, um, especially uh, Kenya, is a, is just a spectacular country, uh, and 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 just in terms of diversity and the kinds of things that you can see and experience on a bike, uh, I think second to none. Um, but in the spirit of of not just telling stories about my own personal experiences, maybe what I will tell you is a is a very sort of uh, interesting uh, story about our first race uh, as Team Amani mm-hmm. uh, uh, in in Congo. Uh, so we did last year. Uh, a kind of hybrid team of, uh, again, some Dutch elite riders, but instead of uh, bringing the riders here, we went to see, we went to race with them down in, in, uh, in East Central Africa and in, in the tour of Congo and, uh, the tour of Congo for anyone who knows about cycling, uh, in the region is sort of seen as like the kind of wild West of, uh, yes. <laughs> of, uh, of continental racing. Um, and, uh, and it was really interesting because, uh, you know, if, if we want to talk about the culture shock, as we did talk about the culture shock that African riders have when they travel to Europe, the same thing happened to our European friends when they when they travel to Congo, right? So they they arrive, they're told that the the race is going to start on Tuesday, only to find out. So then they have their passports taken. The race starts two weeks from Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they and they they're never really quite sure you know if it's going to be like in consecutive days or if you know and, 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 and then sometimes some of the races had two and three hundred kilometer transits within a stage so you would start doing like you know 50 60 k's and then a, then a 200 kilometer transit what continuing this to sounds ride sick. The same day. uh it was pretty it was pretty crazy and uh really just uh i think amazing experience for the guys because i mean also the the kenyan uh, contingent of our team was just like what the fuck you know <laughs> <laughs> but uh but the story has a has a has a kind of uh interesting ending because um yeah, we uh, on stage. I think too. Um, we the, the race organizers very astutely put um, the finale, the finishing line, um, at the bottom of a very steep descent, and then just before, about twenty meters before the line, they put three enormous uh, block-like road uh, speed humps, and so you had a. Uh, a peloton of 65, 70 riders coming uh, about 75k an hour into these three uh, block-like speed bumps, 
mm-hmm. the, the entire peloton is wiped out uh, 10 meters from the line. Uh, every, everyone, <laughs> everyone on our team is, has to scratch. Everyone. <laughs> no way. Dude, <laughs> after like how many in. weeks have they all been there for? Oh man, it was like after after two and a half, three weeks uh, of you know anticipation building for this race, and then uh, you know being told it starts tomorrow, it starts tomorrow, no problem, no problem, and then yeah, stage two wipes out our entire team. Uh, and actually, interestingly, there was some uh, there was a team I think they were from Morocco or something got dropped, uh, but uh, on the descent saw the carnage, rode around the carnage, and won the stage. I love that. I love that. More of this. See, exactly. It goes back to it goes back to what you were saying earlier, right? Like by making the sport, you know, like by keeping this narrow Euro focus, you're hamstringing the sport. Let's get some mid-stage transfers in the Tour de France. Let's get some, uh, you know, ambiguous start dates. And what is something you want people to know about the African cycling scene um, that you think like the European, the American community are just totally wrong about? What I think they're wrong about is this is this bullshit about uh, Africans just not having what it takes. Uh, that there will add one cash of any you know uh, pro continental contract and then quit after a year just so they can go and build it. Shaman, that's uh, paternalism, borderlining racism, borderlining just pure ignorance. Um, you can't just use your singular anecdote to kind of you know, pigeonhole an entire continent. Um, and so I think we got to dispel with this notion of the, of the idea that like, you know, they're just not cut out for, for racing in the European peloton. Mm-hmm. Just you, you, we just haven't had enough riders, you know, you cannot, you know, imagine if you had people and you, <laughs> and you have a continent of 1 billion people and you're going to say, well, based on these six people, uh, <laughs> I, I'm prepared to make an assessment that will now dictate the fate of an entire continent in terms of access to the sport i mean it's it's ludicrous when you think of it that way but that's basically you know not six maybe it's an exaggeration but not many Uh, and so um and so yeah I, i think that is part of what i meant in terms of you know when people are saying that they're serious about a greater inclusivity well this is something that we need to take a hard look at and you know dispel some of these uh some of these notions and let's start fresh and let's start with the idea that, in fact, there are a ton of barriers to entry. There are a lot of challenges for people, not only Africans, but anyone outside of Europe to enter the Peloton. And let's be a little bit more uh, sympathetic mm-hmm. to those things. You know, maybe you even hire someone on a world tour team that's uh, basically a concierge for these guys. You know, show, show mm-hmm. that kind of commitment. You know, if you've got a 40 million euro budget. Professional road cycling, obviously very white, and a lot of the arguments that um, these teams will make uh, to, to, you know, to exclude someone who's, who's slightly different, right, is that they'll just sort of say, oh, they're a bad fit, or you know, our, our, our team's culture um, it does, just doesn't align. But then you see these teams bending over twice backwards for a white guy with some, with some weird dietary requirement or some strange travel you know, desires and, and all of this sort of kind of, you know, to be quite honest, like privileged bullshit, but then they can't accommodate, you know, 
for example, an Islamic athlete who wants to participate in Ramadan or, you know, uh, an African athlete who, you know, finds it better to, to train and return home as often as possible or whatever. And so uh, I think, you know, I, I think you're being a little bit kind there when you're sort of saying it's borderline racist or it's borderline paternalism, it's borderline ignorance. Like, I think it's all of those things. You know, a lot of these organizations, a lot of these people are now saying, oh, we need to do something about this. Well, put your $40 million where your, where your mouth is. Indeed. Last question, 2021, uh, what does that bring for Team Armani? Yeah, 2021, we, uh, we'll be on the road, man. That's the idea. Uh, awesome. So we, uh, we got a team here in Holland and, 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 and really getting motivated also in their own right, you know, uh, by what's happening in the world. Uh, and by the small role that they get to play in it. And, uh, and it's really encouraging to see for me in particular because, you know, I, like I said, I don't want to do these things. I never wanted to do them alone or isolation. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm definitely not doing them in isolation. There is a huge group of people behind me. I'm just the one talking. Uh, and they're doing uh, a lot of really cool work. And, and it, uh, it's really encouraging to see. I think we're feeding each other. We're feeding off the energy that we're getting from from the guys in our sister clubs uh, and stuff. And yeah, together we're just kind of learning from each other and seeing what works, what doesn't work. And 2021 will be like that as well. You know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how those rates go. We'll, we'll tweak accordingly. Uh, we'll see what this partnership arrangement goes with, you know, some of the sponsors who are were, were super enthusiastic in the beginning. Will they maintain that enthusiasm mm-hmm. when the Instagram love, you know, uh, becomes more commonplace? I don't know. Uh, yeah. We'll see, uh, but hopefully we can really break that dependency. To be honest with you, because I don't, I don't really want to go hap- my cap in hand uh, every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'd much rather just see a kind of, you know, almost like a, like a corporate uh, statement, you know, uh, uh, like a corporate responsibility statement saying, uh, for the next ten years, we are going to commit to uh, creating greater inclusivity, and, and these are the concrete steps we're taking. And, and let those concrete steps be, you know, uh, long-term investments and not just superficial uh, social media posts. So yeah, uh, but 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 so far we have we have had to be to be fair uh, a lot of, of really good and 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 uh, encouraging buy-in from even big corporate uh, sponsors. So uh, I, I don't I don't want to uh, to look that in the face or, or turn away from it. I, I'm very encouraged by by the early signs. I just hope that uh, I hope that they're in it for the right reasons, and I hope that they stay committed because uh, that's uh, that's that's going to be where the the proof is, uh, uh, so to speak. Mate, thank you so much. Um, how can we support? How can our listeners support the program? Can we participate in this Thursday night racing, or can we watch it? You know, what's what, what's some information that that we can kind of go out and act on now? Look, uh, it would be great uh, if you guys would join the the Thursday night ride, and uh, the listeners would join as well. Yeah, I mean, the the more we have, the greater the the, the greater the kind of showcasing of, of of these guys' talent will be, and, and maybe your networks will will somehow, if you see something that's impressive. You start by word of mouth saying, have you seen what mm. Suleiman Kangani has done in this ride? Holy crap. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and maybe it just goes by word of mouth and then suddenly, and suddenly you know, uh, he, somebody's, uh, someone's calling him up. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, you know, uh, I suppose uh, the basic things for, for people with less time or, 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 you know, who are not on the e-racing scene, if you just... Uh, follow the team on social media or our sister clubs on social media to see what we're up to uh, and then maybe react to, to some of those posts. And, 
Yeah, for for the more adventurously inclined, uh, we have uh, yeah a bit that big gravel race coming up in the Maasai Mara. So uh, with uh, all the proceeds going to supporting Kenya cycling, and uh, yeah, I mean it's going to be a fucking awesome adventure. So uh, yeah, it that's, sounds uh, like- that's the that's called the migration so uh yeah those are those are some basic things that uh that uh, you guys could do to to help uh support the course awesome and we'll put all of that information for our listeners uh into the show notes so do take a look at those michael mate it's been eye-opening it's been a real pleasure um as 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 have all our conversations and i hope we can continue to have these and and continue to work um with Team Armani to bring about, you know, some positive change and also to just have a really enjoyable experience on the bike uh, with people that we normally wouldn't. So, thank you. And there we go. That's another week of Outspoken. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by myself and Gus Morton with special guests, Michael Delagrange. Don't forget a new short, Sometime Thereafter, has dropped over at the Rome Network. You can also catch the accompanying podcast, which dropped alongside that here in the Outspoken feed. Make sure you subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or even over at SoundCloud to catch all of the future episodes. Don't forget, you can get all the information on Team Amani in the show notes. Please check that out and support the program. You can get in touch with us at here or thereabouts or at howdy at thereabouts.co with any suggestions, comments, or just to say hi. We appreciate everyone who have reached out so far. In the Pacific Northwest, I am Isaac Carson signing off. And from the Rocky Mountain Range, I am Angus Morton. Over and out. <laughs>